Chris Brown and welcome to episode 32 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. To introduce the theme of our episode this month, I want to borrow some words from Massimo De Angelis, who has written the following. Mutual aid, solidarity and commoning become most visible during periods of deep crisis. This is when the structures of the state and of capitalist markets not only fail to address the emergency situation, but they often show their complicity in making it worse. When solidarity is revealed to the majority as the practice that makes a difference, it is as if society en masse were to whisper in our ear its desire to evolve. I want to evolve. I want to evolve, but my evolution depends on you, says society. And again, make this relational care embedded in solidarity the new gravitational point around which a new world is built. Now those words are printed on the first page of a wonderful new book that Pluto is releasing this month, Pandemic Solidarity, Mutual Aid During the COVID-19 Crisis, which has been edited by Marina Citrin and Collective Sembra, with a foreword from Rebecca Solnit. And the book brings together a collection of stories from around the world, revealing what an alternative society could look like post-pandemic, and what skills and relationships we need in order to create that society. And it's the starting point for today's discussion as well. To that end, it's my great pleasure to be joined on the panel today by three of the book's contributors. Laís Duarte, a PhD candidate in the Anthropology Department at CUNY, New York, who studies solidarity networks, immigrant integration policy and decolonial praxis. Laís also co-authored the chapter in the book on Portugal. We're also joined by Marina Citrin, Assistant Professor of Sociology at SUNY Binghamton, New York. She's co-editor of Pandemic Solidarity and also author of many books, including Horizontalism, Everyday Revolutions, and They Can't Represent Us. And finally, we're also joined by Vanessa Zettler, a teacher, sociologist, translator and writer who lives in Sao Paulo, where she's also an activist building community through music. And Vanessa authored the chapter on Brazil. So I'm very excited for what is, I'm sure, going to be a very fascinating discussion. But before we get started, I have the duty, or perhaps I should say the privilege, to give a shout out to all of Pluto's Patreon patrons, who continue to demonstrate their solidarity and all-round excellence as human beings. In last month's episode, I read out the names of our first 50 patrons, and so, without any further ado, here are the next 50 to whom Pluto owes a big thank you. Alejandro Armas Diaz, Jason Davies, Daniel Trotz, Alessandro Delfanti, Richard Glynn, David Lawrenson, Ambler Gee, Nick Hay, Johan Hugo, George Robinson, Brett Wallace, Elaine Swan, Alf Gunvald Nielsen, Ed Lyon, Trevor Moses, Christopher Stocking, Dr. Marcus John Banks, Marina Malazonia, Gordana Risiki de Gorizija, Rose Brewer, David Porter, Sarah Baban, Dr. Becky Alexis Martin, Emily Kenway, Atran Yukana, Rosie Maguire, Alex Maisie, Heather McKnight, Michael Gillespie, Evie Opt Iendi, Anthony Sidford, Jacqueline Conway, Suchitra Vijayan, Harry Holmes, Rebecca Doyle Walker, Sadia Tor, Tom Cornford, Catherine Hand, Anne Gray, Federica, Aoife Crow, Mark Cowling, Steve Wright, Paul Pierce, Inji John, Birgit Pupu, William Jackson, Adam G, and Richard Hawkins. 
So thanks to you all very much for your continued support amidst so much uncertainty. For anyone out there who's curious to know a little bit more about our Patreon, just head over to patreon.com forward slash Pluto Press. Membership starts from just £3 a month and there are a whole host of benefits, including access to the unabridged version of this podcast, Radicals and Conversation, as well as special discounts, free ebooks, exclusive merchandise and much more besides. And finally, as ever, podcast listeners can get a special discount on books relating to our discussion uh, here on the podcast. So for 50% off Pandemic Solidarity, just head over to plutobooks.com, add the book to your basket, and then you can use the coupon code PODCAST at the checkout. All right, announcements over. So Laïs, Marina and Vanessa, welcome to you all to the show. Uh, It's really wonderful to have you here. I'd like to start by asking really what was the impulse behind the book? What was its genesis? Because you speak in the introduction about the prefigurative process of its coming together. So... Yeah, I'd just love to hear a little bit more about that. It was a really beautiful process and completely organic. And it started with a conversation amongst a few people in a graduate seminar on ethnography in mid-March and people from different parts of the world. So from Turkey, from a Kurdish student, and then later students from other places. But we started to have a conversation about the pandemic and how governments were failing and not telling the real story of what was actually happening, both in the crisis part, but then also in the care part. And from that conversation, it just kind of naturally emerged, well, maybe we should put together some of these stories. Um, We being this handful of us, Ariella, Emre, Shema, um, and I from this class, Ah, and Debarati from India. And Debarati said, oh, I have a friend in Northern Iraq, Kurdish Iraq, in media, and maybe she would want to participate. And so it kind of spread in this natural way as more conversations. Could this be some kind of project? Would it be a book? What would it be? I know Vanessa from the time she lived in New York with Occupy Wall Street and reached out to her in Brazil. And I think, Vanessa, you could talk about it. You know Laís. And it kind of continued in these kind of webs reaching out in this beautiful way around the world. So Laís is currently based in Portugal, who reached out to Raquel, and Raquel reached out to Boaventura in Southern Africa, and it kind of continued. And without even planning what regions do we want to cover, how do we want to do this, it became more through networks, our own personal and political networks. We were able to reach out to more and more people to participate in a project that then very quickly became a book, sharing stories of not so much the government failure, because that's a story we all know really well. Our government mm. fail again and again, especially in times of crisis and disaster. But what what's the story of what people do, who we really are, the stories that the media often is not interested in telling, um, which is that we take care of one another, we behave in a way that's completely different to what the media, at least in the beginning, was saying people were doing, you know, that we were hoarding, we were taking things, the toilet paper, all of those mm. kinds of stories. And the real story is the story of solidarity and mutual aid and care and people going out of their way to actually share with one another and do things for each other. So that's what each of the stories in the book is. Um, Maybe in a little while we can talk also about how we became a collective, because that was also, I think, a really beautiful process of a group of people starting to Zoom together, almost all women. And then from our conversations, we kind of moved into it being not me as Marina editor, but we, as our own kind of 
entity talking about the vision and the content of the book. Mm, yeah, I've got the the copy in front of me here. It looks lovely, by the way, which is always nice. But yeah, it says edited by Marina Citron and Collectiva Sembra. So for the non-Spanish speaking listeners, myself amongst them, what does this translate to in English? Um, I suppose literally, but also in terms of the essence. Um, so Colectiva Sembrar, we had a process of, um, well, before we even came up with the name, it was the realization that the book was a collective process. We would meet every Saturday for an hour or two hours, um, seeing one another's faces and talking about our chapters, checking in with how we were each doing. Nancy from Argentina at one point referred to the process of all of it as a life vest for us. And everyone felt that that was really true, that this was kind of holding us up, this process of working together and talking together about these relationships of care and solidarity and mutual aid. And in talking about that and building these closer relationships, we also developed relationships with one another, both as a group and then in kind of pairs and groups of three to support each other in the process of doing the book. So it should be noted that this is not a group of, say, published academics or scholars. We're all scholars in our own way, some housed in universities and some not. And we're all involved in communities and organizing in different ways. And so many participants in the book hadn't even done interviews before, for example. Mm. So other participants in the book who had would spend time in a separate conversation helping to kind of work through how you do interviews, how you edit. That was a painful process for all of us. We had, you know, to fit what, you know, our hours of conversations with people engaged in such beautiful forms of care. And then to edit those words down was so difficult. So a lot of us shared with each other the voices to get feedback. Um, there were writing sessions that happened between, for example, media in northern Iraq and Demarati, who's from India, but was stuck here in New York because of the pandemic. And they would simultaneously you know, be online together. So there's this beautiful process of supporting one another and creating content together, discussing how the book would be laid out, what that would look like, would it be thematic or regional? And so we decided to name this process, that it wasn't single authorship of the book at all, that it was collective kind of authorship. And we're facilitating so many voices. There may be a hundred voices, I think, in this book from around the world. So kind of the collective part is the word colectiva in Spanish. And sembrar means to sow, like to sow seeds, you know, when you plant them and they begin to grow. And mm. even though English is not the dominant language, in fact, I think Portuguese and Kurdish are the dominant languages. But this kind of the way it sounded and flowed, we agreed on. And it was also this book happened very quickly. So was it perfect agreement? Probably not. But it was a consensus. It was agreement and something that we could all, you know, we felt good enough to name it that. I would add also that the whole process of doing it was very horizontal, very democratic. Marina was central in getting us together and moving forward with the book. But we all had our freedom to write and the way we saw it was better for our chapters and and produce it in the most horizontal way we could do it. And that has to do with the collectives we've been, we were working with. Mm. I felt the life vest sensation because I'm coming out of six years of grad school where writing collectively, thinking together and having such a supportive uh, writing environment wasn't a common experience. 
and I think I always felt like a bad writer because of that. And this was the very first experience, writing experience, and either in Portuguese or in English, where I felt differently. And writing with Raquel and being able to have the collective there to ask any questions, to be able to be vulnerable without being judged was really, really special. And I mm. don't think I want to write in any other way moving forward. It's really interesting how the um, prefiguration of like your process of writing the book and how then that's reflected in the, the subject matter as well. But before we move on to that, I guess just one more thing about language, which, yeah, there must have been a huge amount of translation work that's gone into this final English language version that's you know sat here yes. on the desk before me. So what was the approach to language and translation? Because you make some interesting points about language and power again in the introduction that I wonder if you could just go into a little bit further briefly. So the book is compiled in English mm. and English is only the native language, I think, of two, three contributors. So people were functioning in their second and sometimes third language to be mm. able to do this in English. And so much is lost in translation always, but it's not just lost. It's the full representation can't be portrayed when you translate a lot of the time, and especially when there's different levels of, there's the you know translation of language, but it's also another person's voice that then you're translating. So we lose kind of things along the way. So there was that one point, and that's partly why when you read the text, some of the language, you might read it in English and say, oh, that's an interesting way mm. of saying something. I'm not accustomed to that turn of phrase. And it's intentional because we want to try and conjure as much as possible the feeling of the other language. Metaphor is different in every language or analogy and all of these things. Also, it's about power and domination. So the same reason the sections that cover what is known as Canada, the U.S. and Mexico is called Turtle Island, which is the first people's name for it, recognizing that this is an imposed language that carries with it also kinds of power and power dynamics. That was also true for the chapter, say, if you're talking about languages, you know, in Taiwan and with Chinese and different languages used. So we were recognizing all of those different levels. And maybe, I don't know, Vanessa could speak to this as well. And speaking with many of the chapters include um, First Peoples, Indigenous communities. And mm -hmm. they were speaking in, say, Portuguese or Spanish, um, which is not their first or necessarily even second language either. And then it's translated into English. So we needed to put that very clearly in the front when we were talking about the book. Mm. Yes, when we have a decolonial approach to language, we can find a language in between. When we get people, we had more than 20 people from different places speaking many different languages. And there are challenges in communicating, even when we get together in our meetings to talk every Saturday that are challenges, but when we know that the most important thing here is to communicate and not to speak in the most appropriated way or academic level of a language, I think we get something. We get into a third place where we communicate. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, just one, one more thing about language from a slightly different perspective, because if you look at the subtitle of the book, it's Mutual Aid During the COVID-19 Crisis. And if you do a search on Google Trends, which I did just a few minutes ago um, for the words mutual aid, you see a really big spike in the number of references online uh, and searches for that from about mid-March uh, onwards. 
And it's a phrase that many people, particularly who self-identify as being sort of on the left, particularly anarchists, uh, will recognize. And it seemed to have entered into the mainstream, in the Anglophone sphere anyway. So I was just be curious to know how much the phrase mutual aid was employed by the people that you all interviewed uh, and spoke with to describe their own activities, whether that's even a distinct term, again, in some of these different languages, you know, distinct from, say, solidarity work. I think it is an interesting question. I noticed between my interviewees, I heard that term not, not being used by all of them, being used mostly by my interviewee, André, for example, who is, um, in his story, he says he's from Rio de Janeiro, from a favela called Morro da Formiga. And he says how he got politicized through the movement in Brazil in 2013, where there was a lot of uh, street demonstrations and a very progressive moment in the country where there was an influence of autonomous movement. I mean, the autonomous movement started the uprising and then it became a long story of a, a political movement in, in the country. But he has a connection to this autonomous type of organization, the way he got politicized and he used this term so I see that influence but I don't I didn't hear that term being used by my interview from the landless movement which is a movement mm. that exists from the 80s in Brazil occupying land for agrarian reform and I interviewed this 66 year old woman and she was talking about mucho way but she didn't use that term for example so maybe mm. there is an influence of where these people are coming from that that makes them use a term or another even though they are doing similar things. In the case of the Portuguese chapter, three of the five uh, initiatives we interview were formed in the wake of the government provisions to negotiate with the pandemic. Uh, so the government uh, declares a state of emergency in March 18th. And by March 19th, like a day later, you already have uh, this collectivities joining efforts to make sure they were attending to everyone's needs and by everyone, uh, the populations that were not uh, honored by the government provisions, right? So people who lived as undocumented immigrants, uh, people who didn't have housing, people who survived on uh, the informal market. So all the organizations that existed to already uh, protect and attend the needs of these populations quickly realized that they needed to join efforts. So they described themselves as popular, as rede de apoio mutual. So that would be translated literally as popular network of mutual support. In the case of our interviews from Porto, in the case of our interviews from Coimbra, which is another city in the north of Portugal, uh, they defined themselves, their campaign as the anti-racist campaign for immediate support of Coimbra. That would be the literal translation. And as far as the term solidarity, our interviewers, some of them, uh, two of them specifically, uh, took the time to define what the term meant for them. And uh, they were very uh, emphatic in differentiating uh, what they were doing from charity, for example, mm. uh, or assistance, for example. Um, and as you can see in our chapter, this differentiation, I think, 
uh, comes precisely from this need to not portray themselves as the government usually portrays their own actions, right? Not looking at uh, the conditions that people are living under as something that they are responsible for in the first place, right? But as portraying themselves as some kind of, uh, I don't know, heroic uh, entity that comes to save people from the trouble that they somehow got into. So people work in the informal market because the labor market is very racist and it's very hard for people from Romanian black communities to find jobs, right? And other more specific examples that I think everybody should read the book to learn more about. Mm. (laughs) I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to mention this distinction that that is specifically mentioned in in that chapter about the difference between solidarity and charity. Because on the surface, buying food for someone who's hungry and can't afford to go shopping might be seen as like an act of charity, but there is clearly a difference and it's an important one. But yeah, I was wondering if perhaps one of you could unpick a little bit some of the particular, well, there's a lot of different definitions of the word solidarity used throughout the book, but what are some of the ones that resonate and, and how they distinct from just charity? One thing that stands out to me in thinking about it, and it kind of loops back into our process of doing the book as well, you know, in thinking about in the process of doing this book, it was a life vest for each of us. It buoyed us. It held us up and kind of together a bit in a time of crisis as we were compiling voices that we hope is a tool and really useful for people in thinking about, you know, who are already organizing or hoping to organize, you know, how can we do this? How do we develop both in times of crisis and going further? So that dynamic, that mutual aid is not, I'm I'm making a book and I'm giving it, but it is a process and a dynamic and we're getting things as we're giving. And that's, that's the part that's transformative in a much deeper and bigger way, because it means we change in the process, the people doing it. And we're not different than the other people we're in a relationship with. Um, and so I think we even see that, for example, in the chapter in Argentina, there's a collective interview with women who are in an organization of women who are formerly incarcerated, formerly working, selling sex. Um, And they talk about their process of care and taking care of each other and how talking to each other is so important, sharing stories, checking in with one another. And it's both kind of what they do as a group supporting others and what they get from it themselves. And that's important. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with. And in fact, it's important to kind of call out that we transform as we're doing. It's not charity. It's not some people are whole and some people are partial. We're all partial. And together we create these new wholes. And that relationship is, for me, what I see as prefigurative. That's the transformative. We want to change everything in society. And that means changing our relationships. It's not only giving food, making sure people have health care, but doing it in a way that's redefining health that's redefining all of these things together. So the mutual part of it. So I'm not, and I think none of us who did the book are fans of taking a term and saying, oh, that means you are all socialists or you are all something that we've, you know, has this big definition, but Hmm. this is a term that highlights what's already existing. And that I think we hope is useful for people in thinking about this kind of prefigurative dynamic. The um, Vanessa in the in the chapter on Brazil, you write, I think that acts of solidarity activate people and make people stand up and do something for someone too, which I guess speaks to what you just said, Marina. So perhaps you could say a little bit more about that. Like, what are some of the examples from from that chapter of people that you interviewed and how that solidarity sort of activated them and then 
created this spiral was generative and you know expanding expanding out yeah i was actually thinking about the part of the chapter as marina was speaking i interviewed this woman from the peripheries of sao paulo and she was talking about how fundraising was a huge it's been a huge part of the solidarity work they're doing and i saw the difference between charity and mutual aid there because she says for example she talks about a woman who was very depressed uh, she lost her job she didn't have any form of income and she received from the fund from this mutual fund 300 uh, reais uh, and from these 300 she got 25 and she put it back in the fund and we were talking about why that happened why she did it is because she was activated she felt empowered she felt like part of something she didn't just receive something coming from a top-down place she she was part of a network and that activated her took her from that place of depression into a more active place and then also we saw as different because We saw uh, a lot of publicity around big companies or multi-billionaires who were doing donations, huge donations. And I think, well, here in Brazil, we saw a lot of media attention to that, whereas we didn't see that much media attention into those fundings that were happening, that been happening in so many networks around the country. But we see, I didn't put that in the book, but we had a conversation on that was just resources that belong to society and to go back to society. That's the charity we saw coming from the big companies. It's a redistribution of resources that has to happen, should happen anyway. There will be more of the charity aspect. Mm -hmm. And that's not what we saw in the fundraisers and the, the fundings that are happening between the networks of people. I mean, one thing that is mentioned in the, the chapter on... Portugal, uh, Lais, is the the notion of like solidarity in in that context has perhaps slightly different connotations to maybe elsewhere in the world. How it's been appropriated in the past for different in different ways, um, you know, throughout Portugal's history, uh, including as part of more paternalistic discourse justifying colonialism and so on. Yeah, I'd just be interested to hear a little bit more about uh, the rhetoric of solidarity in this Portuguese context. They've funny part of uh, how these terms and what they mean uh, can be activated in people, can come from this anecdote. So as I was uh, searching for people to interview, when the, I would ask them about people, collectivity, collectivities who are active in practice of solidarity, uh, the most radical group, some of whom we ended up interviewing at the end of the process, uh, were very skeptical about the use of the, the word solidarity. And as I got deep into reflecting why I was getting that reaction from people, I went back to the research that I was doing. I was thinking that, well, it makes a lot of sense for a generation that's growing up with the European Union, reappropriating the term, right, after years of a colonial struggle to redefine the term, to take it back from the Salazar Caetano dictatorship. So for people who are being radicalized now, it's strange to classify what they are doing as acts of solidarity because that also means somehow being colluded or uh, in favor of the European Union and its politics or a much farther memory, which is also very traumatic. It's uh, being part of that which 
Portuguese colonial enterprise encouraged people to do, right? Was going to the colonies and being um, in solidarity with people who were morally inferior, intellectually inferior, culturally inferior. So we have our interviewings uh connecting and I think being so careful in redefining the term to connect what they are doing with this more radicalized tradition that comes from the former colonies. Uh, so from Guinea-Bissau, from uh, Angola, from São Tomé e Príncipe, from Cape Verde, where you saw different revolutionary parties collaborating to bring uh, that part of the African continent out of uh, Portuguese domination and ended up helping Portugal to achieve democracy, uh, a democracy that, as we see in the chapter, is still very incomplete. But nonetheless, that was, I think, the impulse to have a history of the term at the introduction of the chapter. As we're talking about Portugal, I mean, you said in the chapter that uh, since the state of emergency was declared 18th of March, it's had this kind of greater degree of success combating the spread of the virus, especially compared to somewhere like the UK or the US, where it's been a pretty woeful. But that this success in preventing its spread has been at the expense of many people, particularly those kind of on the margins of society. So yeah, could you just say a little bit more about the case in Portugal? Who has the success been at the expense of and how much does that tie into the colonial history of the country and, and so on? Yeah. So I need to credit my co-author, Raquel, with having a lot of the conversations that led us to use the intersectionality framework, right? Uh, which helps us really see who was being excluded at the expense of whom this uh, quote-unquote success was being achieved. So Raquel Lima is uh, actively involved in the anti-racist movement in the north of Portugal. She's part of uh, one of the collectives that we interview, uh, NAC, the anti-racist nucleus of uh, Coimbra. And um, she was the one uh, that was very much into us looking at how these organizations were practicing the principle of intersectionality, right? That it's coined in 1989 and how that explained what the government wasn't reaching far enough in the margins in order to do. So when you achieve uh, social security by not thinking uh, about people who may not trust the government enough to go to hospitals, right? People who live as undocumented immigrants, people who live on the streets, people who are racialized and therefore justly afraid of the police, right? And you have a decree of security or a measure of security that aims to achieve this social security by telling you to trust cops, cops that you feel are against you or that you feel unprotected by uh, because of countless examples of uh, police brutality or historical examples of times in which the police wasn't there to allow you to feel safe and secure, but uh, to target you as a threat, right? So I think that part of the chapter really needs to be credited to Hakeo and to her amazing uh, perspective that comes from working uh, in the ground, right? From knowing how people were really feeling about the government decree. 
right? So the first question, when do you see on TV that you are supposed to be at home, that you can't go out? Uh, it's not to feel like, oh, now the virus is going to be contained. Uh, it's to feel like, how am I going to eat? So now I cannot resist arrest. Now I cannot say no to a cop that might give me an order that uh, might put my life at risk, right? Uh, as much as contracting the virus would. So I think that's where that comes from. The chapter that covers Mozambique and South Africa also addresses, I mean, it's different, but there's similar questions raised as far as the role of the police and police violence against Black communities, historically oppressed communities, and raising the question, a lot of people talk about how during this pandemic, it's illustrating structural inequality. And, you know, what is disease? You know, that, oh, pre-existing conditions is what a lot of the media talks about with why people are getting more severely ill without talking about where those diseases come from. And most of them are poverty related, which then intersects with race. What we don't talk about as much, and I think a number of the chapters do in the book, like Lais was just illustrating so beautifully, is, and, and it is in South Africa, is exactly this point of you know, is it really fully successful if so many people are made worse by it? And could we imagine a different way of handling a pandemic, which is not something we're talking about? I think we look at numbers and, okay, there are fewer deaths here than here. So this is being dealt with well, not thinking longer term potential death and disease that's going to come out of the poverty that's being made by the way it's being handled. So are there more ways, different ways that it can be handled? And I would say that so many of the examples from the different chapters in the book show those different ways that are possible. In the chapter on South Korea, it's focused, the author Jiung went into communities of people who are disabled and their self-organizing, you know, people who are some of the most vulnerable because their caregivers weren't necessarily coming to take care of them because it was dangerous. People who couldn't necessarily feed themselves and were completely dependent. And that level of self-organization and sometimes not self-isolation, but finding ways to be careful and do it differently. So I think we see illustrations of different ways of handling crisis that come really only from people working together with one another, not from our systems of government and imposed hierarchical structures of ways of doing things. I was just wondering, actually, on, on the question of like care work, because certainly in the global economy, it's very much gendered, feminized sort of labor. Solidarity work definitely could be described as an expression of caring, you know, uh, empathizing with other people, providing that support sort of in a concrete way. Did you find there was a similar sort of gender dimension to a lot of the organizing that's documented in the book? Uh, was it largely women led? Um, I interviewed a feminist school called Abia Yala from mm. the peripheries of Sao Paulo as well. And she's talking about then, Elena Silvestri, she talks about how women have been doing the care work always. And when the pandemic hit and this work just doubled and she organized a network of women to, to help one another on doing that work, for sure, we can say that it is gendered. And it's something I've seen, it's consistent with the kind of work I do together with movements and societies and movement, you know, especially over these last, say, 20 years, all over have been led by women. 
it's not always known, kind of facilitated, organized, and led by women, because when it comes time to do this kind of thing, to do the interview, to do the public speaking, men have been socialized and taught to play that role, and women not to. And sometimes it's even, you know, a friend from Bolivia has said, you know, the men like to talk and we like to do. Sometimes women are saying, we're busy. You know, we're not going to do all these interviews because we have so much work to do right now. Um, mm. So it can appear different than it is. But from my experience with so many movements around the world and from all of us talking about, you know, these forms of organizing now during the pandemic, it seems very much women, women-led. A lot of schools, a lot of the organizing is taking place in schools. The school's kind of shifting to this work, even in places where it's not allowed. Um, the school's teachers are being told they can't organize in this way. The government will take care of it. They're doing it anyway. And that ranges from the West Coast of the U.S. to parts of South America. Care work is definitely gendered and also racialized. And I would agree with Marina that the people who tend to have the time to talk about it and to feel comfortable and empowered enough to do so are not necessarily the ones doing the hard work. I do think that in the case of the Portugal chapter, we have a balance. So two of the people who interviewed are gendered as men and two of the people who we interviewed who represent large collectives are gendered as women. Uh, but we have a quote, for instance, from the Projetu Nizinga. It's uh, from the same uh, person who is def- taking the time to define the difference between solidarity and charity. And she talks about the beginning of her project, right? Really coming from this position of occupying a precarious body. She's racialized as a black woman uh, from a lower class and identifying with the people who she was supporting. So I think that's quite important. There's also the case of the Plataforma Genie, uh, where they are a network of women uh, who were supporting other immigrant women. Uh, and precisely for the reason uh, that I mentioned before, which is the certainty that the government provisions weren't uh, necessarily thinking about or inclusive of the needs of a big part of uh, the population who lives in Portugal, right? So in their case, they're looking at immigrant women. Yeah, I think if we just ask the question, uh, who is doing who is doing the work of paying attention and asking people how they're doing and what do they need? Who is making the food? Who is taking care of the houses? I think we will would have a clue of what the, the answer would be. So I think um, from my interviews, I can speak to a larger number of people, but I think we all know that the care work is gendered. And right now, I think women are doing and paving the way of a moral society where we care just kind of carrying on from what you were saying about Elena Silvestre from the, um, is it Abiyala Feminist yes. School in Sao Paulo? Yes. Yeah. In, in that sort of uh, bit of the chapter, uh, speak about how, well, the needs that they began organizing around and how this evolved, how that work evolved. So food being the very first thing that they were thinking about when the crisis hit and then thinking about mental health and then domestic violence. I'm sure, I'm sure it wasn't as kind of neatly sequential as that in reality. But I was wondering if, again, so to all three of you, in the course of the the research that you were doing, the interviews you were conducting, did you notice any sort of commonalities between different groups doing this work in terms of what they were doing and how the scope of it expanded in the you know weeks and months 
after the pandemic hit. So for instance, was the distribution of food often the first priority or did it kind of vary? Yeah, that's very important that you mentioned. It's organized like this in, in her speech, in Elena's um, story, but I, I see similarities and I can tell from my interview is I chose to interview people in the peripheries of the big cities of Brazil, Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro. I live in Sao Paulo, so that was also my, my network. But I saw food, just food was the first thing that people mm. were concerned about. And education and information, I saw that as a very important thing as well. And, and checking in, I think a lot of it, you know, in Turkey and in a number of places in Italy, so many people talked about just making sure people had their needs met for food, of course, and medicines or healthcare. Checking in, you know, with people who cannot move easily or disabled or have, you know, for a whole number of different reasons, um, aren't as mobile. So, and in some places, you know, we kind of assume a high level of technology, a lot of us, and that's not true for so much of the world. So in some places, the forms of reaching out to check in looks like people writing notes and posting them around the neighborhood with telephone numbers or, you know, locations where someone could leave a note if you had to, to get support. So that kind of care and checking in, and so many of the networks mm-hmm. also have this spaces, um, I know in both of your chapters too, of talking, even to not underestimate what it means to be if you're alone, and then you have to Mm. be alone. Um, Talking to one another, the forms of education that came up, all of that as well. I I wanted to mention, just to kind of bring into our conversation also Rojava, which is the first chapter in the book. Mm. And it doesn't fit in the same way into all of these conversations, except of course about women, because it is a female-led systemically equal you know they have structures that put in place to make sure women play at least a half you know the role of the majority or half um in all you know kind of institutions but it doesn't fit as well because it's such a different form of organizing their governance so it's Mm. more of a direct democracy and more horizontal so it wasn't the same conversation of the authoritarian government of our various permutations said this and this is society's response to take care of one another. In Rojava, it's more dynamic. Mm-hmm. And, and so, for example, the first thing they did was to say, okay, the health ministry is in charge now. This is a health crisis. And shifted things as far as who made decisions about how the kind of care would take place. So I just wanted to make sure we highlight that and bring that as in a conversation as a not perfect example, but a much closer example of how things could look, how it could be different in organizing society, whether in a time of crisis or at any time. And they're facing war, which is Mm. something when we talk about Iraq and Rojava in the book, the situations are so incredibly different in each place. And that's something that I think is so beautiful about the book and the stories and what it's illustrating and how we are transforming the world and can, and it doesn't, you know, it's too often people see something really incredible happening somewhere and we fall into this, oh, that's really beautiful, but that's, you know, in Brazil because you have this historical relationship to community or something. And this book kind of breaks all of that apart, that no matter where we are, we are organizing in this way. So you can't say it's an exception, basically. This has been Laís Duarte, Vanessa Zettler and Marina Citroen in conversation about their new book, Pandemic Solidarity. 
If you've enjoyed today's discussion and want to keep listening, then do head over to patreon.com forward slash Pluto Press and the full unabridged version of this episode and indeed every episode in Radicals and Conversation is accessible there exclusively for our Patreon patrons. So once again, thanks for listening, stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Bye.